What's going on, Foundry Church? Week four, as we dive in today, um, the thought that enters my mind and makes me kind of, uh, I don't know, turn on this uh, message today is the idea of, that's my seat. Have you ever heard somebody say that? When, uh, when I graduated from seminary, uh, the church we were serving at was really gracious to us, and they helped us go on a sabbatical. And we went, and we did the work of figuring out, uh, it, was a stu- it was a culture study kind of, but uh, really figuring out church planting and the model we wanted to look at, uh, basing it off some things. And we, uh, we were coming home from that trip. Uh, and we were getting on a plane in London, and we were flying back to Toronto. It was an overnight flight, a red eye, and, um, and so we were getting on the plane. We get on, and they had messed up our seats, and they had sat one of our children a number of rows ahead of us. And um, I don't know, sometimes I just think people on airplanes, it's just shady acres, and I don't want my kids sleeping next to a stranger on an airplane and, um, and so we were looking at how we could move things. And I said to uh, Josh, I should just say, come sit by me uh, in this row. And this guy comes up and he goes, that's my seat. I'm like, yes, awesome. Um, just wondering, would you be willing to switch with our son? He actually had a seat that would have more leg room and it was better. It was an aisle seat. W- would you be willing to switch instead of the middle? And he goes, but that's my seat. I'm like, I know. I know it's your seat. He's 12, and I would rather him not sleep next to those strangers. And I would rather next, not sleep next to your face. So why don't we just be kind to one another? And he's like, but that's my seat. And he goes, miss, and called the stewardess. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to get thrown off an airplane. I was so ticked. I was like, what is your problem? And, and I'll be honest, I kind of became that guy. I was like, what, what is going on here? Like, why can't you be, why, why does it have to be your seat? It was a computer-generated gift. You know, let's just help us out here. But, but he was insistent, that's my seat. And I was like, oh, I got so frustrated with it. Eventually, they worked it out, and um, someone else moved, moved, and like Josh was like one row ahead of us, but he was like kitty corner, and I was sitting next to that dude just, the whole way, like, how's your food? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like, just, I was just not in a good mood with that guy. Why? Because that's my seat. I'm not giving it up. Here's the thing that seat had been countless other people's chair, right? Thousands of people have ridden in that seat. And, and the reality was, it wasn't something he owned. There was an opportunity to be generous and to engage the moment differently. Today we talk about Herod. He is the character we dive into today. And when we talk about Herod, we talk about someone who was the wealthiest human being on planet Earth. He was more wealthy than Caesar Augustus, which the Roman emperor, he was more wealthy than him. The dude was crazy rich and he was an Edomite and so he wasn't of Jewish bloodline. We'll talk about that in a minute. But like this, and he was, he was not just wealthy. He was, he, was, he was kind of a genius in terms of building and architecture. He constructed the, the Temple of Herod, so the Temple Mount in Jesus' day. Um, Herod was born in 74 AD, and he had constructed the new Temple Mount um, 
And it was one of the wonders of the world at the time. It was just beautiful. It was this huge temple. And he had really taken the dimensions, but he had fully built the temple. And it was a beautiful Temple Mount structure. He had built Caesarea, um, which was a port city. And it was phenomenal. Like he created a port in the middle of like a flatline coast. He created a man-made harbor, had to dug out all this stuff. He was really intelligent. He had the Herodium. Dan Seaborn talked about that. The mountain that was most likely behind Jesus when he said, if you have faith, there's a mustard seed. You can say to that mountain, be moved and it'll move. And the Herodium, what Herod had built was probably right behind him. Uh, he created Masada, which is out in the Judean desert in the plain there. Um, and it's on top of this mountain, and it's a crazy fortress. It's crazy. One of the great sieges of all time took place on Masada. Um, it's so wonderful in its, uh, its construction and its forethought and its planning that they actually, I mean, the special forces for and the intelligence agency of the Israeli state currently today is called the Mossad. Like, there's something being said about how great Masada was. That was Herod. He constructed. He was an architect. He was a builder. And here's the thing. He also knew he wasn't part of the bloodline of David. He took on, he had adopted the Jewish culture, but he was an Edomite, one of the longstanding enemies of the people of God. They would be present and then... Uh, a thorn in the side of the people of God right up till 70 AD when the final collapse of Jerusalem happened under Roman siege by General Titus. But he, he was an Edomite. He was an outside, uh, he, he had adopted the Jewish culture, but he was not even Jewish by birth. He was actually um, tracing back of a completely different lineage. So it's a really fascinating thing that he would be king, but he was king because he had gone to the Roman Senate and uh, kind of lobbied for the job against the guy who had it. Um, he had lobbied the Roman Senate to give it to him uh, against the guy who had it, and they ended up giving it to him. He had to depose his wife and son to get the job, but apparently that wasn't a big deal for him. So he does this, and he becomes king over Israel, and he's fantastically wealthy, and Jerusalem prospers under Herod. They do great they're doing phenomenal. Things are going really well for the people living in Jerusalem. But this foreigner who was of a bloodline that is the enemy of the people of Israel, and he knows it, he adopted their culture, he knows that he's not linked by bloodline to King David, whom God promised on oath to always have a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. Um, so when Herod hears that there's a king gonna be born, what does he say? No, that's my seat. That's my seat. And so what he does is very fascinating. It's very fascinating but it betrays how deeply he held that he was an outsider, that he was someone who was not in the bloodline. And by doing what he had done to seize power, there was no way he was gonna open his hands and live into the plumb line we have at the Foundry Church, palms up, right? He wasn't gonna let God take out of his hand what he had grasped. He was gonna hold tight to it. And so, him knowing that he's not part of this bloodline mattered because he was going to hold on to control with all he could. And he knew the prophecies that a Messiah would be born and a son of David would come and rule on the throne. 
And we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came, from Jeru- came to Jerusalem. And they ask the fateful question, right? If they had only known. Where is the one who is going to be born king? And Herod's like, he's looking at you, right? I mean, Herod had, ass- had survived assassination attempts by his own sons. Herod's like, I'm the only king that I can think of. Who do you refer to? And they said to him, well, they, there's a star. And we've been following the star. And there's, there, there's a king being born here. And Herod's like, okay, well, do me this solid, right? He doesn't get all salty at him at first. He's like, do me a solid here. When you find him, can you come tell me where he is so I can worship him too? Herod. It's a pretty cheap shot, right? He's like, I just, I just want to worship him. But deep down in his heart, he's saying, that's my seat. I'm not going to let some child king steal it, even if the heavens foretell his coming. So Herod, on hearing this news, it says this, Herod is greatly disturbed, and all Jerusalem is disturbed with him. When he called together all the chief priests and all the scribes and all the people, he said, where's the Messiah going to be born? And any good Jewish scholar would tell you, in Bethlehem, David's hometown, in Bethlehem, in Judea. Oh, awesome. Now he knows where it's going to happen. The prophecy reads like this. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Again, after that prophecy in Matthew chapter 2, Herod kind of gives the magi the wink and nudge of, let me know where he is. I'll worship with you guys. I'll join you for church, right? But after finding the king, Jesus, and worshiping him and giving him their gifts, they went home by a different route. They didn't go home back through Jerusalem because they knew that Herod had some ill intentions. They had been warned about his intentions. And when they saw the star, and this is kind of a cool part. I jumped ahead. but This is a cool part. It says that they had followed the star, but when they saw the star settle over Bethlehem, they were overjoyed. They'd been following. They'd come on, you know, on foot or on camel or whatever and gotten to this place from far away. And when the star settled over Bethlehem, they were thrilled and they were overjoyed. And they went in and they worshiped the king and then they left by a different road, having been warned in a dream not to go. When the Magi had gone, God warns Joseph in a dream. I talked about this last week. He says, take the boy and flee to to Egypt. Herod is going to try to kill the child. Now think about this. Think about this. Joseph is broke. He's away from his wood shop in Nazareth. He probably has very little money or means to do anything. But he was given gifts that are very valuable and would do what? Now, this is my thought, but I'm like, well, he has gold. He can go and he can take his family and hide in Egypt. Why? Because God had provided for the road ahead of them. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you because Herod's going to try to kill him. And Joseph obeys God. He obeys God. When Herod 
realizes, and this is where you see, this is my seat, right? This is where you really see it come out. When Herod realizes that he's been tricked by the Magi and he, he realizes that he's not gonna get to the king in time, what does he say? And this is the most haunting part of this story. This is a part of the story where all of us kind of get a little squeamish and uneasy because Herod sends the temple soldiers, sends the Jewish soldiers, so they were occupied by a Roman force, but there was, a, there was a temple guard and there would have been the, the Herodian guard, the king's guard, and he sends those soldiers to Bethlehem in Judea, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Um, he sends them and he says, kill every boy to and under in that village. I don't want this king taking over my throne. I don't want this king taking over my throne. The writer of Matthew, the writer of the gospel, says uh, and, and pulls out um, the, this prophecy uh, from the book of Jeremiah. A voice in, is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. Why? Because they are no more. Because the king, Herod, had killed their sons. And the town is devastated. And after Herod died, the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and says it's safe to return. And Joseph returns back to Nazareth with the boy. It's an amazing story. And it tells us that something is going on. There's something happening in this story that um, probably probably makes us uneasy because we are people who have certain, I wouldn't say entitlements is the right word, but, but we, like every three-year-old ever, know how to scream in more polite adult language, mine, mine, it's mine, you can't have it, it's mine, it's, it's a possession, right? We don't, have, we don't have things, we have possessions. We have things that we own that we possess, Look at, look at what this says in Matthew chapter two, verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Because Jerusalem had more than ever. More than, more, they, they were as wealthy right now as they had been since back in King Hezekiah's day. 600 years ago was the last time Jerusalem was doing this good. They had a lot of possessions. Herod, was king at great cost, his wife and his son. He was incredibly wealthy, and he wasn't gonna let his opportunities pass him by. He was gonna hold power. So when King Herod heard the announcement that a king was to be born, he was greatly disturbed, but so was Jerusalem, because this would unnerve and upend their success and their prosperity. A note from De Devotions this past week, I thought it was so good. King Herod was greatly disturbed because he knew the throne wasn't rightfully his. He wasn't from the line of David. He'd been appointed, and this child was a threat to his power and his control. This child, this king, Jesus, was a threat to his power and control. And I would say this, he remains such to those of us who think of ourselves as master and commander of our own lives. Invictus, right? Take it up by your own hand. You are master of your own fate, not if you're a Christian. Not if you're a Christian. 
And really what this does is it points out something that um, should make us feel, again, that squeamish feeling. So what disturbs you? What makes you all salty and ready for a fight in life? What gets under your skin? What things or people threaten your power, your control? What gets you salty, right? What gets you ready to go? What will light you up really quick? What is it? Is it like you? Are you like me on an airplane? And you're like, no, I'm not having, you can sit somewhere else. I'm going to have my kid near me, right? It seemed justified to me. I guarantee you this. That guy probably tells the story of me on that British air flight very differently than I just did. There was this dad who's freaking out because his son wouldn't be able to sit by him. And I'm like, dude, he's on an airplane, not going to lose him, right? You can see how there's two angles to that. That got me salty. That got me mad and ready to fight. So here's the thing. And I'm going to go back to this. What threatens the power or the role or the control or whatever you want in your life? What gets you, what disturbs you? That's what it did to Israel or to Jerusalem and Herod. They were disturbed. I and mean, out of that disturbance, action was going to come. Something was going to happen. Have you ever had someone come into your place of work and suddenly they're the new favorite? Everybody thinks like, you know, Larry's so funny all of a sudden. You're like, I'm funny too. You guys used to laugh at my jokes, right? Or, you know, somebody comes in and they do a really good job and you're like, you know, what? what is that? Why does he get all the props? I've been doing my job all the time. And what do you do with that? What do you do? They're the new favorite, and you kind of think that they're the worst, right? You're like, I wish they had never come here. They've ruined my life. And they took my spot in the fridge where I always put my lunch. And now it says, Larry. Here, over there, Larry, right? You, you get that feeling. By the way, no Larry's work at Foundry, I'm just saying. No Larry's were harmed in the making of this message. Um, possibly, uh, oh, oh. <clears throat> Possibly. Um, possibly, maybe you had a football coach. And I know this has happened for, um, for students and athletes alike, where you've had a football coach at the varsity level, and they've been talking to you since you were in like seventh grade, and they're like, hey, can't wait to see you get up on this level. Excited to play under the Friday night lights with you. You're going to do great things, da 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 And they build you up, and when you get to that freshman year in high school, they're like, oh, man, it looks like we're going to pull you up by the end of the season. You're going to have your shot. You're going to take a whack under the big stage. And you're like, yeah. And the coach takes a different job. And the new coach can't seem to remember your name or know why the other coach valued you so much. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute. This disturbs all my plans. I was going to be the guy. Why do I have to reprove myself to some guy who doesn't know me? Why did he Oh, this disturbs everything I had wanted. Maybe it's a new member of your friend group for students, for you students out there who are like, you have your group of friends and somebody else comes into the friend group and tries to get kind of close to your squad and they're all close with them all of a sudden and you find out they went and did something and didn't call you and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. We don't exclude me. Right? We have this feeling. So let me ask. Suddenly we find ourselves going, no, no, that's my seat. So how far would you go? We know what Herod was willing to do, but how far are we willing to go to keep power and control resident in our lives? Would we trash the new member of our friend group? Would we mock them and make little jokes that cause them, uh, you know, make, 
I think there's a nuance to this in how it can go. Um, you, you know, you pick people apart uh, to be funny or um, you, 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 it's all done in kind of humor, but you know deep down it's cutting and it's just slowly like chopping them down. And, and your hope deep down is that um, you'll say a joke and everybody laughs, but you're laughing, but your eyes are set on them. You make eye contact and you're just like, yeah. I know you like, you let them know by the way, this isn't just funny. You've got to fire that first shot, and you're trying to tear them down. Everyone's laughing, but you know you're doing damage to them. You know they'll think about it later in the night. How far are you willing to go to break that person down to make sure you're safe in your friend group, to make sure you're, you're the one, you're the center, or whatever? How, look, let's be honest. How, how much would you do that if you're like, well, no, I'm going to leave it at that. I like that because actually what we do with our friend groups can be so damaging to other people. And it's one of the ways we find out how far we're willing to go. How far we're willing to go. What if uh, with that new employee, employee Larry, right? What, what happens? What, what will you do for them? Will you be critical of them? They come in on casual Friday in their business casually, like, Larry, come on. Get, did you have a hard time with the employee handbook there, Larry? And you just kind of mock them, you heckle them. You show, um, you, you just kind of, you point out every time they, as a new person, miss out on what the, one of the office norms is. They do something, you're like, oh, we don't do that. It's okay, everybody, don't forget, Larry's new. He's a nice guy, but we got to get you into this, Larry. It seems like you, you haven't quite figured it out. And they're like, eh, eh, and they feel all awkward. But what you're doing is slowly eroding confidence in their ability to perceive the room and find the norms. And you're pointing out, I'm in, he's out. Don't forget, I'm one of you and he's not. And it's a subtle way of sliding someone out of the picture. Just point out every time they mess up. Or even, and this is the worst, ugh, when someone's like this, it's fine. Well, based on that look, it's not, right? But we can do that. It's, it's fine. I'll fix it. Hey, you'll, you'll figure it out eventually. Oh, Marty walking off. I got it. And Larry's like, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm still figuring things out. But because he was, I don't know. For me, if I'm honest, it is such a terrible moment. I, I'm, I'm, I'm usually kind of the funnier person around. I make jokes all the time, and I'm not afraid. I, unfortunately, some people have been a victim of that, to make jokes and different things. So usually if someone comes in and they're really funny, I find my dander. Like, here's the thing. Best-looking guy in the world could walk by me and walk right in front of my wife, and I wouldn't be like, oh, oh, you know, I'm like, whatever, you know, looks fade, but this is forever, you know, no, um, I'm just joking. But like, I, I'm not gonna sit there and be like, oh, Erica really thinks he's good looking. That's not gonna sit and pull at me. But if all of a sudden I hear my wife laughing all the time with somebody, that's a dead man. Because I'm like, no, 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 I make Erica laugh. That like, like, am I right? Like, you, it's true, like, one of the things, like, 
it, we laugh together. We laugh a ton together. And so uh, she's even teased me about this. She's like, you know, like that would be your thing. If somebody made me laugh, you'd be like, I don't like them. I'm like, you're super right. Now, I'm not saying I'm a crazy, jealous person, but here's the thing. And she does like, there's been times like, I think every member of staff has heard that high-pitched kind of squealy laugh when she really laughs at something. And I'm not like, you're dead to me. But, but I'm saying like that prolonged kind of pattern of behavior of someone just always, you know, whatever, being the, being the role you wanted to be and the ways, how far will you go to get them out of center and you in it and say, no, that's my seat, Larry, find a different role. You can be awkward guy on the outside, right? That, that's how far we'll go. Herod went beyond what we can imagine to maintain his seat. Herod went beyond what we can imagine or, or, did Herod do what he did because he had absolute power and the wealth and the goodwill of the people whom he had blessed with more possessions? Did he have all that? And because he had all that, did he do what we would do to keep power? Did he do the unthinkable only because he could? And I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves. How far would I go to maintain my position? How far would I go to maintain my position within this church, within your job, right? Now, the laughing thing about Erica, like, go pretty far to maintain that, right? And there's integrity in that relationship, but I'm saying this on a different level. How far would we go to say that's my seat about our friend groups, our football coach, our volleyball coach, our softball, baseball, whatever coach, how far would we go to get ourselves back in the center? Let's do a quick um, compare and contrast. Let's look at Jesus, oh, Herod versus Jesus. And let's not weigh into it the bloodline of David, which Jesus has and matters super much. Let's just weigh out character. Herod was willing to deceive people who came in goodwill to his country to celebrate what they believed was a gift from heaven to this earth, a new king. And they were coming to celebrate that, and he was willing to deceive them to do what? To put to death the child. So he was willing to kill a child, and then we find out he's willing to kill thousands of them just to keep his grip on his power. That's Herod. But if we look at who Jesus is, if we look at who Jesus is through Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it says this. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Right? My seat at the right hand of the Father. But rather, he made himself into, reduced himself into the form of a slave, a bondservant, Think of those two. Like you want to know who Jesus is? The character and nature of Jesus is not saying that's my seat. The character and nature of Jesus is seen clearly in this. He took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus would die a shameful criminal's death and not consider equality with God to be grasped. Herod would kill anybody's children if that child threatened his reign. And there is a nature at work within us, the nature that we could call Herod and a nature that we're invited to be adopted into, the nature of Christ. Which one would you choose? Which one would you live out? I will tell you this, church. If Christ isn't on the throne of your heart, it will come to fruition in some way. It will come to fruition in some way. It'll grow out of you like an orange grows out of an orange tree. Why? Because it's in your nature. If your nature is embellished, or not embellished, imbibed, you you give in to the nature of sin, and you're like, no, that's my seat. That's who I am. I was made this way. Well, maybe what's natural doesn't come best because there's a new nature offered to us and that nature is the very nature of Christ and that nature says this, that Jesus, who being God, didn't consider equality with God to be grasped, but he made himself in the form of a servant. He was made and found in the likeness of a man. He reduced himself, not screaming mine, over anything but us. He did it all so that we could be his. That we could be his, that we could be in relationship, not as possessions, but as dearly loved sons and daughters of God. Friends, my challenge to you is to weigh out these two. And don't pretend that Herod doesn't live somewhere within our sinful nature. We're just not the richest people in the world with autonomy. I'm scared of what we would be if we had all that. That's a dangerous person in any generation. But the most winsome, wonderful person that I've met ever is a person who is formed in the image of Jesus, who does not consider equality with you, with God, with anything to be grasped. They consider their life a mission for God to this world. And they'll serve and they'll care for people that are below their station. They'll love people who don't deserve it and have been mean to them. They will care for this world in such a way that we realize there's something very Jesus-like about them. They don't consider equality, station, or my seat to be grasped, but rather they find themselves in the form of a servant. And their life Their desires die daily for the glory of Jesus. Man, may that be said of you and of me in this life. May people look at us and say, that's the character. That's the character of who they became, a person like Christ. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word and the way it speaks into our lives. Guard us, keep us, and uh, make us tender, Lord, to you. May we never justify the the little things where we push people out, where we do people harm to maintain a place or a standing in this world. May we always, like Christ, serve as he did in in order that we could be a connection for someone to know you, that they would see us and know that they are loved, that they are valuable, and they are not just some station on a social ladder they're a person made in the image of God, loved by God, and intended to be redeemed for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Remember this, church. Sin is not what you do. It's who you are apart from Jesus Christ. 
You have a sinful nature apart from Jesus Christ. But you also are invited to take on the very nature of Christ, the Holy Spirit filling your life, your sins forgiven, and your life and your purpose redefined by him. So I invite you, I invite you, I challenge you to ask yourself who you really are. I kind of feel like I laid bare some things today. Um, there's, there's, there's a fight in me to be Herod. I, I am, I'm a broken person, right? We all have our things. We all fight for our things. And it's hard not to. It's hard. I'm not saying this is an easy one. But here's the thing. When I read Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it literally, I was standing up when I read it the first time and I wasn't reading it for this teaching. But I was like, that, that's the opposite. Go and be that. Right? That'd be the easy thing to say. But we can't just do the easy thing. I invite you to do the hard thing. I can't just say, go be that. The next time you're faced with this, I hope that Philippians 2, 5 through 11, comes to mind. When someone takes what is yours, when you're wronged or you're finding yourself pushed to the margins and you want to claim that's mine, before you ever speak out, no, that's mine, weigh it against the character of Jesus. Weigh it against the character of Jesus. It very well may be yours, and it may be something you need to fight for, but it might be something that you have to lay down in service to the king, knowing that every sacrifice we make, every effort we lean into at great personal cost, though the world will probably never see it, does not go unnoticed by our Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. I think Jesus loves it when he sees his church acting like him, being like him. Go and be like Christ in very real ways, not considering, not considering your station in life, but considering your nature in Christ as you